This is Double Truck Stories, the home for some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Justin Ellis. It's fitting that Tommy Morrison found himself playing the role of an up-and-coming boxer opposite Sylvester Stallone in Rocky V. Morrison's story has some easy parallels with Stallone's iconic character, a boxer who rises to improbable stardom through a series of victories to become the champion. Morrison even beat George Foreman in the WBO heavyweight title fight in 1993. In the early 90s, it appeared that Morrison was on the verge of something big, his trajectory putting him on a course to eventually even challenge Mike Tyson. That all got cut short in 1996, when Morrison was diagnosed with HIV prior to a fight. Morrison's rise, retirement, and eventual denial that he even had HIV are the subject of a new 30 for 30 documentary from ESPN Films called Tommy. It's available on demand now and streaming on the ESPN app. In this week's show, we bring you one of Liz Merrill's final stories on Tommy Morrison as she went in search of the boxer just prior to his death in 2013. There's no easy answer for how everything unraveled for Morrison. And in spite of the odds, Morrison kept planning a comeback that would never materialize. Liz spoke to family and friends to better understand the fighter, how he lived his final years, and why he denied that he had HIV until the very end. After the story, stay with us as Liz and I talk about how an internet rumor sparked her reporting on Morrison's final days. If you like Double Truck Stories, you can do us a favor and subscribe to the show wherever it is you listen to all of your favorite podcasts. And now, here's Tommy Morrison's latest big fight by Liz Merrill. Tommy Morrison's latest big fight by Elizabeth Merrill. In a house on the edge of a dead-end road, an old woman waits for her son to die. The call will come any day now, she says, and when it does, she wants her youngest boy to be buried in Sulphur Springs, Arkansas, with the rest of the family. She dreads and hopes for this call, if that makes any sense. Only none of it makes sense. Diana Morrison crushes a Pall Mall, lights another, and dissects her son's fate. She's matter-of-fact about it, barely emotional, perhaps because Tommy Morrison former World Boxing Organization champion, former HIV cautionary tale, has stared at death before. But this time it's different. She says he has full-blown AIDS. She believes he's in his final days. His skin is jaundiced. His liver is failing. He's too far gone, she says, flashing an incredulous look when asked whether he could recover. He's in the end stages, that's it. She says Morrison has been bedridden for a year, can't speak, and is being kept alive with the help of a feeding tube and a ventilator. I talk to him on the phone, she says. I tell him that the family loves him. He's always in our prayers. What can you say to him? I don't tell him to keep fighting or nothing because I want him to go. She is interrupted by her ex-husband, who's living with her now because he's had a couple of strokes. Tim Morrison wraps his arms around Diana, and she tells him to go lie down, but he keeps pacing around the house with a blank look on his face. It's the middle of the afternoon, but the house is dark. Diana lights another cigarette. She is slight but imposing, harsh but sentimental. She's a woman with tattoos on her arm and her great-granddaughter's pink bike parked outside the house. Diana gets up off her chair and searches for proof of her son's status, pulling down a picture from the wall. It captures one of the last times she saw her son. She's not good with dates and can't remember when it was taken, but Tommy is thin, gray-bearded, barely recognizable as the strapping, confident man from six years ago who swore he was not HIV-positive and vowed a comeback. In the photo on the wall, he looks lost. It's been about a year since she last saw him, it's complicated. She just had back surgery. He's been shuffled to various healthcare facilities in at least three states. She says she doesn't have the money to leave her house in Aurora, Missouri, and drive hundreds of miles to see him. There's tension between her and Morrison's wife, Trisha, and at the moment, it seems thick. In her heart, Diana believes her daughter-in-law loves Tommy, but is keeping him alive through extraordinary means. She says Tommy wouldn't want it this way. She says Trisha, like Tommy, doesn't believe he has HIV. 
Tommy blowed smoke up her butt about it, Diana Morrison says. He's been in denial ever since he's had it. So he's blown smoke up her rear end and got her believing. The women communicate daily by text. It's easier that way. Diana says he's in a hospital somewhere in Nebraska. Morrison's wife, reached by phone, declines to say where he is. She doesn't want the hospital to be inundated with reporters and visitors. He is somewhere, she says, and adds that she is touching his arm as we speak. She says he was to have surgery Thursday to replace a gastrointestinal tube. She is steadfast that his illness is not HIV-related. Since February 10, 1996, when the Nevada Athletic Commission said Morrison tested positive for HIV before a fight, the 44-year-old has spent most of his days dodging the diagnosis. And now Trisha Morrison, who married Tommy two years ago, is carrying on that battle. She says both of them question whether the virus exists in him and if it exists at all. She says Morrison's health issues began more than a year and a half ago, when a doctor left a 12-foot piece of surgical gauze in his chest for eight days. She declines to name the hospital or doctor, only that it happened in Tennessee. Things got worse, she says, when he contracted Guillain-Barre syndrome, an ailment in which the immune system attacks the peripheral nervous system. She says Morrison has the rare Miller-Fisher variant, which manifests as a descending paralysis. She has hope, but it's all up to Tommy now, she says. God and Tommy. She hangs up the phone and texts a photo of a gift she says Tommy gave her before he got sick. It's a picture of a heart-shaped piece of wood, and on it is a handwritten note. Don't give up on me, it says. I've been fascinated by Morrison since I met him in 2006. He was in Arizona that fall, training for a return to the ring, a comeback he said would be so great that if it were a movie, it'd be a combination of Rocky, Rudy, and Slapshot. He drove like a bat out of hell through the streets of Phoenix that day, getting lost on numerous occasions. He said HIV was a conspiracy by the government, that his positive test was possibly the evil work of a rival promoter. The day was confusing, entertaining, uncomfortable, and weird. At one point, at a Hooters, he pulled his shorts partway down to show off an Elvis tattoo on his hip. By the end of the interview, I had more questions than answers. That's the way it's always been with Morrison. He starred in Rocky V, spent part of his fortune on pet monkeys and at least one mountain lion, and was once married to two women at the same time. Two years ago, in one of his last interviews, he told the Kansas City Star a story about how he teleported himself out of a bar to avoid a fight. So it's no surprise that the journey to find Tommy Morrison and to find out what exactly is wrong with him is nowhere near cohesive. There are tales of chest implants and phantom graves and a dark abyss of drugs and unfulfilled dreams. There is a general sense of impermanence to his life. He's lived in Tulsa, Wichita, Kansas City. He had an address in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, also known as the home of Dollywood. Morrison made at least $10 million during his boxing career, according to his family and a former promoter, but now has next to nothing. In a financial affidavit filed in September 2011, months after he was charged with possession of marijuana and drug paraphernalia, the charges later were dropped. He wrote in scribbled cursive that he did not own a home or a car. On the line that asked about his employment, he checked self-employed. Athlete, he wrote. His last known job was running a gym called TCB, taking care of business, which is also the motto Elvis used in the last years of his life. It was 2010. Morrison was featured in the Wichita Business Journal, hobnobbing with the mayor and a handful of old boxers who came for the gym's opening. He promised to work with inner-city kids and teach them his sport. He was still training, still hoping, for a comeback that year, even though he was 41. The 3,000-square-foot space was donated by developer Rob Snyder, who told the local paper that he was skeptical but was rooting that Morrison would succeed because it would do great good for the kids and the community. Morrison had left Wichita by late 2011 and was living in Tennessee when he was taken into custody and transported to Kansas to face the drug charges. When his mugshot was released, boxing fans were startled by his appearance. He was bald and gaunt, and barely recognizable. Morrison's uncle Troy, an anesthesiologist in the state of Washington, 
was floored when he saw the photo. He says his nephew looked homeless and 60 years old in the picture. When I saw him two years ago, he was still in the mindset that he was going to launch a comeback, Troy Morrison says. I didn't want to deflate that, but I didn't want to encourage it either. I just tried to change the subject and play along with it. I think he was living in a fantasy world for a while. I think at some point, reality slammed him in the face. And that's when he poured the depression and everything into drugs and alcohol. And that accelerated the disease process. You know, I think it's very lonely where he's at right now. The number for TCB Boxing Gym was at some point disconnected and now belongs to a man who says he's never heard of it. By 2012, Tommy Morrison had slipped off the grid and his fans knew something was wrong. Gordon Barry, an ex-amateur boxer from Maine, was so concerned that he did a search of Tennessee's vital records out of fear that Morrison had died. Barry used to love watching film of Morrison's fights in the 1990s and one day figured, what the heck? Why not send Tommy a message on Facebook? Morrison replied, and they talked about boxing and comebacks and even texted each other occasionally. When the communication stopped, Barry knew it wasn't a case of an athlete blowing off a fan. Morrison loved interacting with his fans. Maybe they brought him back to a better time. Maybe they made that time seem closer. I think if he let everyone know he's all right, it would be great, Barry wrote in an email. Or if he's not, and needs help. I think he'd be surprised at the boxing community's concern for him. People would love to help him out. His closest friends paint Morrison as a man with good intentions and questionable judgment. One of them declined to talk for this story unless Morrison approved the interview, then suggested that there was no way he'd approve the interview. He'd hate for people to know he was sick, or weak. Years ago, his mother said he got pectoral implants to make himself look bigger and stronger. Those implants became infected, hence the chest surgery in late 2011, and had to be removed. Ask 10 people why Morrison has tried to run from his HIV diagnosis all these years, and you might get 20 different answers. Accepting it meant giving up boxing. Accepting it, back then at least, meant he was going to die. Morrison grew up in Jay, a northeast Oklahoma town with a population of about 2,500. He always considered himself a country boy at heart. There was a time, at the height of his career, when he was on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. He went to a bar with Sylvester Stallone after the show. Then Stallone asked Morrison and his promoter, Tony Holden, to come back to his house. Morrison eyed the scene, the celebrities and the swooning fans, and decided to go back to his hotel. When he got in the car, he told Holden, You know, this is a lot of fun, Tony, but this isn't us. Let's go back to Oklahoma. There was once a sign at the town's city limit proudly welcoming folks to the home of WBO heavyweight champ Tommy Morrison. But then, just after his HIV diagnosis, it reportedly was taken down. It made Morrison feel isolated. To the people of Jay, HIV was something that happened thousands of miles away. It was a different time. In some places, it was still known as the gay plague. Tommy had a hard time with it back then. Holden says. People wouldn't shake his hand. People wouldn't come close to him, wouldn't let babies next to him. And I saw that. And you took a kid from this height of stardom, being in movies, to the point where everyone wanted to be Morrison's friend, to the point where, man, nobody wanted to be in the same room with him. I witnessed it. And it was heartbreaking. Holden was the one who broke the news to Morrison that he'd tested positive for HIV in February 1996, hours before he was supposed to fight Arthur Stormy Weathers in a tune-up for an eagerly anticipated bout with Mike Tyson. Holden says the man with the Nevada Athletic Commission, who informed him of Morrison's test results, had tears in his eyes. He was 27 years old and had just signed a contract that, according to previous Morrison interviews, guaranteed him three fights and $38 million. And with that test, the guarantees were gone. He called his mother. Come home, she told him, then advised him to take another HIV test. That one was also positive. His life before that was a decadent stream of parties, limos, and sex that would have made Keith Richards blush. His life after that appeared lonely. He once lent 
slash gave large sums of money to his entourage, a group that shared copious amounts of booze and women with him as he prowled the bars of Westport in Kansas City. That group of friends, Holden says, disappeared once the money was gone. Morrison, who's six years younger than Holden, was like a little brother Holden wanted to hug and smack upside the head. He tried repeatedly to get Morrison to save his money, to be careful. Holden and trainer Tom Virgitz used to take Morrison to all-male military academies to train, so he'd lay off the women in the bars. After the diagnosis, Holden tried to get his friend to take care of himself. He took him to Dr. David Ho, who treated Magic Johnson for the disease. Tommy bought into it at first, and then did some research, Holden said. And then he went into the direction that he didn't have it, that it didn't exist. And so after his tearful news conference, after he confirmed he was HIV positive and blamed it on a reckless lifestyle, after he promised to get in touch with anyone he'd come in contact with, sparring partners, and especially the young ladies, Morrison did a complete about-face. Holden said Morrison quickly had a change of heart after doing research on the Internet. He concluded that HIV was a conspiracy and that the doctors were quacks. He said the tests were false positives, he staged a comeback in 2007, tested negative for HIV, but questions swirled over whether the blood was actually his. Holden is one of the few people who stuck around for his friend. He says Tommy was loyal to him back in the 1990s when other bigger promoters tried to snatch him away. Now Holden won't leave him. There was a little spat a few years ago when Morrison wanted to fight again and Holden was strongly against it, but they're fine now. Here's the thing, he says. I believe in HIV. He doesn't. We both know where we stand. Holden declines to say whether he communicates with Morrison right now, but he does check in with Trisha every other day. I know that sometimes there's a rift, sometimes not, with the family and Trisha, he says. But I will say this. His wife has been by his side 24-7 every day. She's always there for him. Every time I call, she's with him. Trisha Morrison says she met Tommy in 2008, but then again, maybe it was 2009. It was whenever the documentary House of Numbers played at the Tallgrass Film Festival in Wichita. Trisha says she was working at a hotel in Wichita then, and Morrison, who happened to be staying at that hotel, asked whether she'd go to the film with him. House of Numbers is a controversial film about HIV and AIDS that the New York Times once called a weaselly support pamphlet for AIDS denialists. Tommy, according to Trisha, watched the documentary with his mouth wide open. He told her that he's been saying the same things about HIV for years, but nobody believed him. Before she met Morrison, Trisha didn't have a lot of thoughts on HIV or AIDS. She used to believe that a person had to be careful around HIV patients, but then she did her own research. She goes on about how she wants to see a real picture of the virus, not just a computer-generated image. Dr. Richard Haubrich, a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of California, San Diego, said that there are photos of HIV using scanning electron microscopes. HIV, Haubrich said in an email, is the best documented infection there is. But Tricia is resolute. She forwards an email to ESPN.com with Morrison's viral load levels. She sends a text that says HIV tests on the market do not detect HIV infection. She refers to Dr. Robert Gallo, the man known for his role in the discovery of HIV as the infectious agent responsible for AIDS, as the biggest medical fraud in history. Trisha adds that she's had unprotected sex with Morrison. She does a lot of research. She knew of Tommy's past via Google. When they met, one of the first things she told him was that she's never done drugs, has no body piercings, and has never been a hooker or a stripper. She felt like she had to get that out there after everything she'd read. She says Morrison looked at her and said, You're the type of person I'm looking for. Morrison's wife says she came to the United States in the early 1990s to work in the tourism industry. She, too, was once an athlete, an accomplished tennis player in her youth. In an article on the Sundridge Park Tennis Club website in England, she's listed under Famous Members. The article says Trisha played on the tennis circuit and once took three games off former French Open champion Sue Barker. However, the article says, 
When she was beaten at Kent by Anthea Cooper, she did not like the feeling and gave up competitive tennis. Trisha denies that she stopped playing competitively because of that loss. You have to devote yourself 100% to it, she says. I had other stuff I was doing. Trisha says she's known who Morrison was since 1993, when she was in Las Vegas. She was trying to book hotels for clients, but all the rooms were gone. She later found out why. Morrison was fighting George Foreman that week. She says she isn't with him because he was in Rocky V, and she isn't a groupie. She was drawn to him because he has a kind soul, because he's an emotional guy, a decent guy. She says she's going to read Morrison this story while he lies in his hospital bed. She disagrees with Diana Morrison on a number of things, but makes a point in a later text that Tommy loves his mother very much. She says he would always call her every time they flew somewhere. She says she doesn't believe she's keeping him alive through extraordinary measures. You never give up hope, right? She says. And you never give up. That's him, too. When Morrison was in jail for the drug charges, Trisha made an appeal to his fans to donate money for his bail. She concedes that they are struggling financially, but quashes rumors that she is writing a book. There is a book that Tommy wrote that is sitting on their computer from a while back, she says, waiting to be published. It's called My Darkest Years. She says Tommy wrote it by speaking into a handheld recorder, and then Trisha typed it out for him, and he proofread it. I haven't got time to write a book, she says. I'm not out to profit on any of this. I'm with him 24-7, taking care of him. But back in Missouri, Morrison family members believe they have reason to be wary. They think she will write a tell-all book that will paint an unflattering picture of the family. They know that there's plenty of material out there already. It's been written, many times, that Morrison's dad, Tim, was abusive, that he'd get drunk and beat Tommy and Diana, that he was a perpetual philanderer until she finally left him. It's also widely known that Morrison's brother, Tim Jr., spent 15 years in prison for rape. And four decades ago, Diana was acquitted of a murder charge. Tommy's brother says he doesn't mind if his past is mentioned because that's public record. I don't care. But she's been listening to the delusions of a guy whose mind don't work right. Tim Jr., he's called Timmy by his family, is visibly frustrated by his brother's condition and his inability to do anything about it. He was the one who used to take care of his little brother, who watched to make sure people treated him right. Tim was a fighter, too. He was in a hotel in Boise, Idaho in 1992, the night after a fight, when he watched Tommy, with a broken jaw and a busted hand, go nine rounds to beat Joe Hip. Tim was so proud of Tommy that night. But Tim went to jail when he was 28, and got out at 43. His boxing dreams were over, so he did construction work. About four or five years ago, Tommy was short on money, so Tim hired him to work on a construction project he was overseeing. Construction was not exactly Tommy's thing. Basically, I paid him to hang around, Tim says. I mean, we were working on a house, and I get up there and say, paint this side of that door, and he climbed up the ladder and said, uh, I can't do these heights. He sat in the truck. Tommy struggled to find a niche outside of boxing. He was so used to having people take care of things for him, Tim says. If he was lonely or sad, the brothers never talked about it. They were raised in a household where men don't cry, stuff happens, and you handle your business and go on. The closest they ever got to talking in depth about Tommy's fall from grace was Tim telling his brother, kind of a bad deal, and Tommy replying, yeah, I know what you mean. The last time he saw his brother was roughly a year ago. He says it took Tommy ten minutes to figure out who he was. Tim says he doesn't visit Tommy anymore because Tim just gets angry. He acts tough and shrugs when asked about his brother's fate and says everybody has to die sometime. But he clutches onto his lapdog named Jezebel during part of the conversation. His dad was bound for a nursing home after the strokes, but the family couldn't stand for that. I still love him, Diana says. So she took him back in. And together, Tim and Diana take care of Tim Sr., who walks with small steps. Tim Sr. has a glass eye, his eye was gouged many years ago at work. People close to the family speculate that Tim Sr. lost his way as a young man on a construction site when his older brother was crushed by a blade and Tim held him in his arms as he lay dying. That brother's name was Tom. 
When he was younger, Tommy wanted to be a jail warden, his family says. No one is quite sure why. Tim says he could have been anything. He would have been a great comedian. With his wit and looks, he could have been a TV analyst if he'd only kept his conspiracy theories to himself. Diana loves boxing. She used to corner for her sons and taped their hands. But her favorite Tommy story has nothing to do with that. He was three, maybe four years old. His daddy had just bought a car, a shiny, new-to-them Lincoln, and Tommy was outside playing in his cute little bib overalls. He ran inside and said, Dad, I filled your car up. They went outside. They saw the garden hose. She still smiles when she tells that story, still picturing Tommy smiling and running his thumbs through his overalls. He was always a mama's boy, she says. Tommy has three sons of his own, two who are adults now. His oldest, Trey, has considered taking up boxing. Trey recently called Tony Holden and said he wants to meet up and talk about his dad. He wants to know about the old days, when his dad was a superstar. Holden is eager to tell him about a man he was so close to. He made him best man at his wedding. I think he knows he screwed up, Holden says, and probably didn't get the chance to spend the time he wanted to with his boys, but he sure cherished them and loved being around those kids. When Tommy is gone, Morrison's family hopes he's remembered as a person, and not just a personality. Tim Morrison says Tommy brought a lot of excitement back to boxing. He says he was human. Try being 20 and a millionaire, Tim says. You're not always going to make the most wise decisions. Tommy was way too young to have all the money and fame that he had. That was his whole problem. He had the world by the balls, and he blew it. Years after they watched him fight on pay-per-view, the Morrisons sit in a single-story house with worn-out floors and tails. Diana was so scared before his first professional fight. She covered her eyes for part of the time. She once charged toward a referee when Morrison was getting beaten to a pulp and the ref wouldn't call the fight. She knew when he'd had enough. Some days, Diana says. Trisha puts the phone up to Tommy's ear, and Diana can hear him breathing. She wonders why he's still hanging on. I think he's waiting for me to tell him it's okay to go, she says. I want to tell him, your family is going to be fine. Your sons are fine. And I'll be fine. Welcome back. That was Tommy Morrison's latest big fight by Liz Merrill, who joins us now. Welcome back, Liz. Hey there, Justin. Thanks for having me. So I guess the first place to start, at least with me, uh, upon reading this story, upon listening to this story, is just, holy crap, that lead. You know, a woman waits for her son to die. Uh, How did you land on that as the way to open this piece? Well, the... I guess I wanted to capture just sort of the scene of what was going on and kind of the tension there and just what, you know, what his mom was going through. Um, it, it was sort of a surreal experience even being there. Um, we, you know, so this was several summers ago. Um, and you know what we usually do, like especially like writers who cover football, like I do a lot. I don't exclusively cover football, but I, I do quite a bit of football. Like the summer is kind of your time to catch up on ideas that, you know, you've been wanting to do, but you ne- didn't necessarily get a lot around to it. Well, I got an email from a reader who said, Hey, what's the deal with Tommy Morrison? I heard he, he died. And I was, you know, just thinking, well, if he was dead, somebody who was that. Now, I know this generation probably doesn't know who he is because he hasn't fought, I mean, on the big stage and, you know, in 20 years, but people would know if Tommy Morrison died. He was on Rocky Five, and, you know, back in the day, he was pretty popular. But, you know, there was, like, these websites that had, like, these graves he was supposedly in. It had become sort of this, you know, this, bizarre sort of tale that was spinning out on the internet. And so I just, you know, had some time to start making some calls and pulling some records and 
obviously there were no records of him being dead, but like, you know, trying to find him and trying to find his relatives. And, you know, there's, you pop up sometimes with all these addresses and a lot of them were Midwest based. And it was like, you keep whittling down the numbers. And, you know, there was this one number I called for probably like off and on for a month where it would just be this ringing phone with no answering machine. Yeah. And, it was just, uh, it took, you know, it took a really long time to get anyone on the phone to uh, talk. And w- one day, I don't know if, you know, one of those numbers somebody finally just answered, but it was his mom, Diana Morrison. And, um, you know, she was she was wanting to talk. I remember I was in a parking lot <laughs> somewhere, and uh, she, I was surprised she answered. Cause it's kind of been a, a like a routine for me to just keep calling these numbers. And she was like super chatty. And I'm like, um, and I think part of that stemmed from the need uh, to, to talk to somebody about this, you know, and, yeah. and maybe like make sense of something that she couldn't control. And I remember saying, can I meet up? Cause I couldn't really like, uh, I mean, she had said, yeah, he's really sick, but I couldn't like, you know, make out a lot of what she was saying on the phone. I'm like, can I just come out there? And she was in Aurora, Missouri. I'm based in the Midwest. I just got in a car the next day and, and, you know, drove, I don't know. So it's kind of like by Joplin, which is like Southern Missouri. Uh, and, um, just, just, uh, met up with her and it was a really dark house. Um, a very, I mean, I think saying a modest house would be probably putting it, would be, you know, kind of uh, putting it lightly. Um, you know, uh, I, I just sort of still, this is, you know, a few years ago, but I still have this visual of just being in this really dark living room, uh, you know, and his his mom smoking these palm malls and just telling the story about how she, you know, she's ready for her son to die. Um, and, and she thinks, you know, she doesn't want him to go through this anymore. There was a big battle between Tommy's family, you know, and um, Tommy's wife. They wanted two different things. Um, but, you know, up until that point, we, you know, we had heard that, that Tommy Morrison got arrested in 2011, I believe, on a drug possession charge. And, and there was a mugshot photo that kind of made the rounds. It did not look anything like him. I mean, he was only yeah. like in his early forties and he was gaunt and he looked, you know, much older than that. So, I mean, there was, uh, you know, all these rumors that he was sick or, you know, that he was gravely ill, but it wasn't until then and actually sitting down with her that some of that came to light. And so to make a very short question, a long answer, uh, just being in that living room was just such an unusual experience. You know, she's just sitting in, you know, this old couch, uh, I think, you know, and telling me the story about her son and, and what has happened to him over the last few years and how, you know, he denied that HIV existed and that, you know, that had caused him, to sort of, he'd stopped taking his medicines long ago, and right. you know, and, and and it caused him to spiral to this point, um, on the verge of death. And so, I just wanted to capture that scene, pretty much. Well, staying with that for a minute, uh, people who aren't reporters are, you know, probably not used to something like this, and we have our own social codes when you know we're at funerals or when someone is sick, but. How do you negotiate being around people in such a sensitive time when you're trying to do reporting like this? You know, you're you're with uh, his his mother, his his dad, his brother, uh, and they're basically all waiting to find out this news. And it just seems like it's a very tense time. And how do you negotiate I something think, like that? I think in any situation, you always have to sort of know. You know, you have to like I don't I don't know if the the word is the phrase is play it by ear, but you sort of have to get a sense for what they're okay with, you know, if they're okay with having you there. And I know in that conversation, I, you know, are you, at some point I said, are you okay with me, you know, coming down and seeing you? Um, Because yeah, you can really, you don't want to seem insensitive. Um, You, you know, we deal with stuff like this where, you know, after someone has passed, there's always this, um, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to make things worse for someone. I guess that's always kind of been something I've followed, you know, ever since I started that you, 
whatever you get into, you, you just, you don't want, they're going through so much and you don't want to make things worse for them. Now, for some pe- people, it's cathartic to talk to somebody. For others, I mean, they might go years without wanting to talk to anyone or at all, ever. And so you just have to respect what they're feeling. Um, you know, I, I really got a sense that she wanted to talk and she was totally fine with me coming out and and like I, I, you know, on several occasions would say, are you okay talking about this? Is this, is this okay? And she was fine. I mean, you have to understand their family has seen a lot, which is kind of like it bears itself in the, out in the 30 for 30 for sure. And also in that story, um, you know, the dad, Tommy's dad, who uh, he, you know, he, he has since passed, but you know, he watched his brother die uh, in a gruesome construction accident when they were working. And people sort of theorize that that's how the dad lost his way. And, you know, there were all these um, stories about him, you know, beating his wife and his children. And, you know, um, and, and so, and, you know, there's, there's a that the family had sort of seen its share of dark times. Now, not to minimize it and say, well, they're used to this stuff because how could you possibly be used to something like that? Yeah. But I was really surprised the way she took that head on and just some of the things she said were so matter of fact, you know, like I remember asking her, you know, are you sure this isn't, you know, today we look at HIV as something that can be, you know, that, that, that you can, obviously get on medication and you know your quality of life is considerably better and you can live you know look you can live a very long time but you know so in my mind not like being completely versed on how that works I'm thinking well can't he get back on his meds yeah and you know and just asking her that you know are you sure this is like something he can't rebound from and she just looked at me like, are you kidding me? And it, everything she said was so matter of fact. I think, one, that's her demeanor and her personality. But I also think that she's had a long time to have to live with this. Yeah. You know, he was diagnosed with HIV in, in 1996. Um, and, and through those years, I mean, he, he accepted it in the beginning. You know, there was that press conference right after he tested positive before the fight. And and then uh, along the way, he started reading more and more conspiracy theories. And, you know, he started, you know, he started reading the Internet and, and like all this, you know, AIDS denialist literature. And he decided that, you know, HIV didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, I, it was you, you always have to sort of you have to ask, you know, hey, are you OK with this? And I, I know I did that a lot. And sometimes if they're not then you don't push, you know, you just say, okay, well, I thank you for your, you know, your time. And, but she was, boy, she was, you know, very willing to talk about this and was very upfront about it. And that, and so that's kind of plays itself out in the story. Well, as you, as you just mentioned, it, it wasn't just Tommy, obviously he, he went, he was known to sort of deny the fact that he had this disease. And as you just mentioned, his, his family in some ways seemed to have that cloud as well in terms of, you know, whether it was a hopeless situation or not, how do you write about people who deny that something like HIV, which is proven to be real, yeah. um, how, you know, how do you write about that with, with people who, who sort of just deny the actual existence of, of something like this? Well, it's not easy. And I remember it like the, the first time I talked to Tommy was in 2006, I believe. Um, I worked at the Kansas City Star, and um, Tommy, a, a decent amount of his fame, he lived in Kansas City, kind of a decent amount of his glory years sort of played out in Kansas City. Um, and so my boss, I remember one day, I was covering the Chiefs, but it was like one of those things where, you know, if you had free time, or whatever, I think I was going to Arizona. He was in Arizona. I think the Chiefs were playing the Cardinals or something. He said, hey, can you go down? Uh, and see if you can catch up with Tommy Morrison. He's saying he doesn't have AIDS, he doesn't have HIV. And so I, I remember thinking, okay, so you're reading up on all this stuff and you're thinking, okay. But then meeting him 
and hearing some of the stuff he was talking about and some of the conspiracy theories, you know, you just turn on your tape recorder and you're like, how am I going to write this? Because in your mind, you know, and it, it was just, it was such a trip being with him that day, not only because of what he was saying, you know, he was just, he, you know, we went to Hooters and, you know, he's showing the waitress his Elvis tattoo. He's like basically dropping his drawers, but you know, not totally <laughs> to show like his, 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 uh, he had a tattoo. Uh, and he, you know, he was driving, I was driving with him. He like, I, I swear he, he almost got us killed on several occasions. Uh, and I mean, this, this was Tommy. I mean, he lived very large. Um, he was funny, but, uh, he, his ideas, you just, you know, the, some of his beliefs, you were, you were, uh, I, so I, I, I remember thinking, okay, how am I going to write this? But I think the thing you have to do is you have to write what they say and you obviously have to write what's out there and talk to doctors. I think we did that with that story for ESPN, uh, you know, before he died, I, I think we talked to, um, some doctors about that. It's like, well, here's what he's saying, but yeah, you're, you know, it's, and, and the 30 for 30, uh, folks, um, also, you know, Gentry Kirby is a really talented producer and Aaron, um, they, they both dealt with that. And yeah, you, you, you're like, this is, this is the way it is, but you know, you still have to write what they say. Now, it was really significant with Tommy too back you know, in the oh six to write the story because he was trying to get back into boxing. Yeah. So um obviously you cannot box if you're HIV positive because there's so many safety issues. Well there you know, so the, all of that needs to come, you know, you have to address all of that in the story. But I got to tell you, I mean, he talked for hours and hours about this, you know, about uh, this was back in 06. Obviously, he wasn't able to talk when we did the story, you know, years later. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is something that's been part of his belief system. Um, And and he married a woman who believes the same thing. um, And she still kind of has that. She still has kept that fight going. Um, You know, uh, and so it's. It's a really interesting subject, uh, and you just have to, you know, present what he says and then present what scientists, you know. Like, I I know one thing that his wife said is that they, you know, uh, she's never seen a picture of the disease. Um, And, you know, that, so, you know, it's like that's their belief system. So you write about that, and then, you know, you write what the doctor is saying, you take it from there. So, you, as you mentioned, you know, you first were introduced to Tommy in 2006, and you wrote about him a number of times, and that was a part of this story as well, and I, I'm wondering why you wanted to provide that that context and sort of your own history as a part of this story. Well, you know, I never, like, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with writing first person. I'm just <laughs> not comfortable with it or very good at it. I feel few people so are, I, yeah. I, yeah, I, so as sort of as a practice, I don't, unless it's a story that completely screams to do that. But I felt in this situation that there needed to be some context. You know, one of the things my editor, Janet Janavi says, uh, she'll say, hey, you know, you need to use your expertise. You know, if you, if there's something where, you you know, you know uh, a topic really well, you know, you, you've, you've dealt with this topic, you've sort of lived with this topic, then you need to show that, you know, with the reader. And so I felt like that context was necessary there, you know, um, it helps sort of like sort of give you a picture of, Hey, you know, why are we doing the story? But also it gives you a window into who he is because like, I mean, I don't know how many people were able to sit with him, you know, for like, and hang out with him for a day and listen to him talk about why, he didn't think HIV existed. And I think that was important to include in that story um, that we did that, that I was there, you know, years ago when he was trying to come back as a fighter. And, you know, the other context of that was that, you know, this fighting was his life. It's like, 
when that went away and when the money went away, the people went away. I mean, he was a guy who drew a lot of, I mean, he drew like a lot of athletes. He had a big entourage. Um, he was very charismatic, you know, people loved him, but when, you know, back in the mid nineties at that time, HIV was sort of still like, you know, it was perceived differently. You know, it was, you know, they called it, the, they called it the gay man's plague. So imagine being from a small town like he was in Jay, Oklahoma, and, you know, kind of living this rock style life and then having your hometown sort of turn against you. You know, there was a sign that was taken down after that. And so I think all that stuff played into who he was and sort of his deterioration. You know, he couldn't fight anymore. His, a lot of the, his so-called friends left him yeah. when, you know, he didn't have any more money. And I think all of that plays into how things ended for him. And I just thought all of that sort of painted a better picture, you know, hopefully for the story uh, by including that in there. Yeah. So when you, when, when you sort of went out to this story, as you mentioned, you know, you had heard a little bit of rumors and, and did a little bit of digging, you know, you're sitting down with your editors to talk about this. What was it that you were pitching? What was it that you wanted to find out or, or, or accomplish with reporting this out? Well, I mean, it's it's kind of a news story, right? Because, um, you know, Tommy Morrison uh, of Rocky Five fame is, you know, in his final days. So in a way, it's a news story. But it's like way more than that because, you know, you're telling a story about a guy who's basically – you know, he the, the the reason that we thought this would be such an amazing 30 for 30 is because, I mean, there's just so many aspects of his life that are so unique um, and fascinating and bizarre. I mean, this is a guy who had pet monkeys and, and had like a pet, like there's a debate over whether it was a tiger, but it was a very large cat. I mean, this is a guy who had... <laughs> Uh, pectoral implants, you know, um, and that was like, this is a guy who supposedly, according to his wife, um, the reason she said his health was deteriorating, part of it stemmed back to him having a 12-foot piece of surgical gauze that got left in his chest yeah. during a surgery. So, I mean, he had all this, he was married to two women at once, both of whom were named Dawn. Um, <laughs> I mean, this guy, I, I still believe, and, you know, I, but, you know, there was also another side to this, to Tommy, that, like, I mean, he was sort of the hope for boxing. I mean, if 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 the diagnosis hadn't happened, if he, if he didn't contract HIV, I mean, who knows what would have happened? Like, he was, you know, he was this up-and-coming star in a sport that, you know, desperately needed that at the time. Uh, you know, very photogenic. Um, and so it's kind of cool that, in a way, although this, the, the documentary is very depressing, um, the stories we wrote for .com were very depressing. Um, but it's, it's kind of, I, by the same token, I think it's kind of cool that, A, People are, you know, a generation of people are, are going to, you know, find out about this guy who, you know, who probably, if you're a boxing fan, you obviously know who he is. But, like, you know, there's a whole generation of kids who never have heard of Tommy Morrison. But also, um, you know, there's still a lot of hope in this story because he's got two sons who are boxing now and trying to carry on that legacy. And, you know, the, you know, both of the sons bear striking resemblance to him, and they're both doing pretty well. Um, and it's almost like they're kind of picking up where he left off. Uh, but, yeah, it's um, – so I, it would have been a story – you know, the thing you're accomplishing is, like, it's a new story, but it's way more because you're talking about what's happened with his life. Right. You know, this, this sad spiral. I mean, obviously, he's a cautionary tale of the capital C and the T. Uh, but 
um, you know, there's so many facets of his life that, you know, that are so fascinating. And, and they still are. I mean, I will still hear, I, if I hear anything about him, I, I just think it's one of the stories, you know, everybody has, like, I don't know. I, I, they probably have a handful of stories that, like, stick with you and that, you know, will you read whatever you can about this person. I mean, he's definitely one of those people for me just right. because I always thought he lived such a fascinating life. I'm wondering, you know, what is the trickiness in writing the ending to a story like this where the main characters, you know, could die at any point in time? And how do you sort of put a cap on, on a story like that when, when the fact might change at any given point? Yeah, it's not easy. That's why we have good editors who help out. And to be honest with you, you know, I know Wright Thompson. He, like, when I talk to him about the process, he always says, He's got his end figured out before he sits down to write. And boy, I wish I was like that. I'm always worried about the lead. <laughs> if I can get through the lead, which sometimes takes me a day to sort of process in my mind, like, you know, I can sit in front of a blank screen. I can't, like, you know how some people, they can they can write mid-story and do sections. I can't do that. I have to go from you beginning, to top to from top to bottom. Yeah. And so I think we're writing that on a decent deadline, too, probably. Uh, and, uh, I, I don't know. There's no easy way to write that. And so I, I think it ended with some kind of quote. Um, but yeah, there's, there's no easy way to write that. Cause we didn't know, um, you know, it, it was hard to sort of get a gauge, uh, of like, you know, what was going to happen there. You know what I mean? It's not like I could talk to his doctor. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, I believe that, like, although his family, his mom was very pessimistic, I want to say his wife was hopeful that he would rally. Like, I don't think by any means she was, like, thinking he was, you know, going to pass or, or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, like his mom, for, she wanted him to pass for his sake because she felt like he was suffering and he wouldn't want to live that kind of life. Yeah. But I think his wife was hopeful. I think Trisha to the end. And like, I don't know that for sure, but this is just me. And just from the tone of our conversations, I think she was hopeful that he was going to, um, you know, survive. So it was kind of like, you didn't know, you didn't really have a really good gauge, but you just wanted to, you know, you wanted to be able to tell his story and, and kind of what, you know, what the people around him were going through and piece together what he was going through as best as you could. And so, yeah, that's kind of how, but yeah, there was, uh, there was no real good way to end that story for sure. Well, at least in some point now, I guess there's a little bit of redemption as it's, uh, as it's been turned down into uh, into a documentary at 30 for 30. So it's a, a whole new, a uh, whole new audience and a whole new lease on life there. So Liz Merrill, yeah. thank you so much for uh, coming by the show. Thank you for having me. For this story and more, you can go to ESPN.com slash DoubleTruck. And if you're interested in seeing the Tommy 30 for 30 documentary, it's on demand now and streaming through the ESPN app, where you might even be listening to this podcast. This episode was created by the team at ESPN Audio and produced by Michael Rabier. The Double Truck team includes Ryan Graner, Rick Santos, Jenna Janovey, and Eric Neal. Remember, if you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe to Double Truck Stories on the podcast player of your choice. That'd be very much appreciated. We'll be back again soon with more stories. But until then, I'm Justin Ellis. Thanks for listening.